All right, so we've been dealing with this uh, series for a number of weeks now. Uh, by the time we finish, there'll be 12 sermons in this series of War with the Flesh. And I kind of want to, again, kind of, uh, we've got some new people here. And by the way, it's always great to see new faces. You're welcome. We're glad you're here. Um, try to kind of catch you up in what we've been doing for the last 10 weeks or so now at this point. Um, we got today and next week we'll finish up this series of what it means to war with the flesh. We started off in, in Romans chapter 7 where Paul is struggling. He's talking about the things I don't want to do, I do, and the things I do want to do, I don't do. I, I see this law, this different law, this war with inside of me. And that's kind of where we started as, as Paul is talking about the experience that, that most or every Christian has, uh, that as we struggle uh, in what it means to be a disciple, as we try to become different, uh, as the work of the Holy Spirit takes place in our lives and, and as we start to change because of the gospel implanted in us, this, this struggle we have with, within ourselves quite often. We started there and then we kind of took... Um, time to really put on quite honestly bone and flesh to what that war looks like we talked about you know different uh battlefields with the flesh that we have those kind of collectively dealing with our anger dealing with our with our mouth we talked about personal ones the one that get more personal those those particular appetites that we each might struggle with or or yearnings of our heart that that kind of lead us into sin and struggling we talked about a, a culturally uh how to look at our passions. Um, and today we're going to start the, the two-step uh, process to kind of victory over our flesh. Uh, and today we're going to be talking about the battlefield of our mind. It really is the very first step to having victory over our flesh because, you know, really our brains, our mind, that kind of controls our body. That's kind of the headquarters. And, and getting a grip on that battlefield will aid us in all the other battlefields. So if you'll turn to Romans chapter 8, because that's where we're going we're gonna to be starting these last two sermons. Because in 7, Paul talks about this war. And we, and we took time to look at what different parts of that war is. There, it could have gone on and on about different places we struggle, been more specifically. But we, we've kind of at least looked at some of those major battlefields that we struggle when it comes to warring with the flesh and battles of the flesh. As soon as he says that, you know, he, he ends, when he looks at himself, he ends up with, woe is me, this wretched man I am. Who will set me free from this? Um, and, and Romans chapter 7 ends kind of on this big downer, you know, this, this struggle, this pain that he's feeling. He, he's trying to figure out what's going on. Uh, and he's wondering who is going to set him free. What's going to make the difference in his life? And he talks about Jesus. But then Romans 7, and this is why I, ne- I encourage people, never stop reading the Bible just at the, the chapter marks. You know, Romans 7 and not start and carry on because the ideas carry on. This is Romans chapter 8 verse 1. Probably one of the most beautiful verses in all the scriptures. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so what Paul is doing, he's like, I, I see this battle, I see this war going on within me, and, and I'm pretty disgusted by it. I don't like what I do and the things I want to do, I don't do. And he's struggling, he's upset with that. And he reminds himself, first of all, of the gospel, that those who are in Christ Jesus, they've been set free. There is no condemnation. F.F. Um, F. Bruce, a, a, a classic commentator, this is what he said about this verse. He says, focusing on the word condemnation, he says, there is no reason why those who are in Christ Jesus should go on doing penal servitude 
as though they had never been pardoned or liberated from the prison house of sin. What Paul is saying, this word condemnation, it has this kind of idea of penal servitude that, that he's under this law. He's been, there's been a sentence passed on him and he's got to make restitution for his sins. He's, he's, he's penally wrong. He's, he's in the court of God. And he's reminding himself, no, I've been set free. Verse 2 goes on to say that, you know, you are set free by the Spirit. Uh, imagine it like this. And I think this is sometimes when it comes to warring with the flesh, what Paul is reminding himself is something we must remind ourselves of is that this fight we have is not to free ourselves. We're already freed so we can fight the fight. Um, imagine, if you would, someone... Now, some of you will remember back in the day when when part of our penal code, part of our penal system within this country had a thing called the chain gang, right? And people who were in prison who had broken the law, they would serve the community, they would serve time, they would do work on the chain gang, right? Now, imagine, if you would, someone who's in that system, right? You still take people out and do work on the side of the road, though, don't you, Matt? Yeah, that's right. Well, imagine one of Matt's guys... Out there on the side of the street. Now, put yourself in Matt's position, all right? He's a guard. He takes these guys out and he watches them do the work and all that kind of stuff. Now, imagine if there was a guy, one of you knew, and, and because he had a certain fine or he had a, whatever his restitution was, whatever it was, you went and paid it. And, and you, you set him right with the court and he could be free. You know, he's done. You went and paid his, his sentence. You went and paid his fine. And he doesn't have to go back and work for Matt or alongside Matt anymore. But he gets up every day and he goes and joins the, the, the chain gang. He, he does the work. And you're like, Matt would be like, buddy, you're free. You know, your friend paid your, your fine for you. Why do you keep showing up and doing this work? That's kind of crazy. And that's what Paul is kind of showing. He's like, we approach our sanctification. We approach this battle with the flesh like we have to keep doing this so that we can pay our fine. And Paul saying, no, you're already set free. You don't have to keep stay, you don't have to keep doing this work to free yourself. Your fine has been paid. You're not under condemnation anymore. But if you were the one who paid the guy's fine, right? You say he had stole something. Well, you wouldn't expect him to go out next week and rob again. He was like, Hey, I paid your fine. You don't have to go work on the chain gang anymore. But also, how about stopping the robbing thing? You know, don't make me come back next week because I ain't coming back next week and paying it again, you know. And so it's that kind of idea that we're struggling with that we don't do this work. We don't fight these fights so that we will be free. We fight them because we're already free. And God is expecting us to live a different life now that we've been set free. That's verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Paul's realizing this war is going on and he's like reminding himself, all right, I've been set free by God. I'm not under condemnation. I am free to do something else. And he introduces right here in verse 2, really the main character in all of chapter 8. Up to this point, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit's mentioned, been mentioned two times, about two times, in the book of Romans. In chapter 8, I think it's 22 times that he's referenced in this chapter. And so what Paul is moving into is in this battle, for victory in this battle, we must rely on the Spirit. The Spirit is huge in the battle with our flesh. 
And so we're going to work through the first uh, several verses of Romans chapter 8, uh, starting with verse 3, or starting with verse 5. But I want to give you this title. This is what we're looking at. Three mindsets in our battlefield for the mind for victory over our flesh. Three mindsets we can have because of what the Spirit does in our life that will give us victory or help us have victory over these different battlefields we looked when it comes to battling for and with our flesh. The first one is a mindset of I can. Verses 5 through 10. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh. For those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because of the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. And it does not subject itself to the law of God, or for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Verse 9 starts off. However, those transitions are usually pretty big in the Bible. However, you are not of the flesh, but in the spirit. So whatever is in the flesh, this however is like whatever is in the flesh, it's different for you. For people in the flesh, they can't follow God. They're not able to do that. When we get upset with those who aren't believers for sinning, we should not be so much upset as feel pity because they can't do anything else. They're slaves to their sin. They're slaves to their flesh. They have no ability to do anything else because their mind is set on the flesh. They don't have the spirit. And so they're missing something that enables them to do otherwise. That's verse 8. However, you are not in the flesh, but you're in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. He's pointing out a fundamental attitude, a fundamental mindset that we as Christians must have when we enter into battles with the flesh. And that is, I can. I can have victory. I can do something else. I can overcome. I can not give in. <laughs> it's, it's the ability that we, of all people, are the only people able to repent of our sins. Repent means turn away from, stop doing. We, because of the Spirit's indwelling presence in our lives, can do something else. We don't have to give in to our flesh. We don't have to be victims of our old sin nature. And we must first adopt the idea because I know when I struggle so often because I've let sin be a pattern in my life. I let it become a habit in my life. So often when I face those things, I feel like Man, I just can't. I just can't control myself. I just can't do any better. I just can't shut my mouth. I just got to say something. I just got to do this. And the fact of the matter is I must remind myself because of the spirit in my life, I can. I can do something different. I have the ability, not in myself, but in the spirit who indwells within me. That when God asks me to do something, he also gives me the ability to do it because of his presence in my life. The spirit's huge in that. And so we can't go around, well, you know, that's just who I am. That's just what I do. I'm, you know, but you can know that Christian because of the indwelling spirit. You can be what God wants you to be. 
The second mindset. I must. Verse 12. So then, brethren. Okay, brethren. You understand that's believers. Disciples, right? So he's talking. Paul's talking to other believers. His brethren. We are under obligation. Not to the flesh. To live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. He's like, we're under obligation. What's the obligation he's referring to? We're under obligation not to the flesh. Then what is our obligation to? To the Spirit. To do what God wants us to do. That God has saved us and he has expectations of us. We're under obligation to him. To bring glory to his name. We're not under obligation to save ourselves. We're under obligation to glorify the one who has set us free. We're under obligation to like that little scenario we we referenced earlier. We're under obligation. If you were the one who paid the fine for someone for stealing, they have a kind of an obligation to you not to go and steal again. You, you, they, you have a right expectation is I'm taking care of this for you. Don't go do it again. They, they kind of have this obligation to live up to the faith you have in them. So why do we fight these battles? Why, why do I say we must? If we're, not, if we're not battling to save ourselves, if we're not battling so we can go to heaven, well, what is the reason we must do these things? If God has set us free, why must I have victory in these areas? Well, you remember maybe Romans chapter 1 verse 5 I've mentioned it almost every week. I hope I've mentioned it every week. I may have missed one. This is what Paul says we do. He says, through him we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. We must for God's glory. We live and fight these battles so God is glorified because we're Christians, because we're disciples. We live in such a way to bring glory to him. I read from you at the beginning today, Psalm 25, one of my favorite verses, Psalm 25, 11. The psalmist is asking for forgiveness of his sins. But did you catch the why? The psalmist said, oh God, I want to go to heaven. Please pardon my guilt for it's great. No, he says, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. That what God does in our lives is is much more about God than it is about us. Yes, we're the recipients of good news. We're the recipients of great gifts. We're the recipients of eternity. That is wonderful. But it's to show others how good God is, how gracious God is, how merciful God is, and how following God is the way to abundant life. This is the planner. This is the maker of life. And when we live it God's way, it's always better. And so we we magnify God, we bring glory to God's name because of being under obligation to him by by how we live. It, it, It honors him, the one who paid our price, the one who set us free. And so there there should be within us, I must represent this one who loved me so much well. I must bring glory to his name. I must not squander this gift that's been given to me. 
I must make it known to other people. I must be an example of if God can do something in Jason, I got a lot of hope. That may not seem very true to you, but if you had known me when I was 16, 17, and 18, when I can identify the most, when Paul said, of all sinners, I'm the chief of sinners. That's that's my one of the verses that Paul said that I go, yeah, that's me. And Paul said, and I receive grace so that you could be encouraged by how gracious God is. And so we see that, we bring honor to him, and I must do that so that he is glorified. So I can, I must, and finally, I am. Now, if you'll notice, there's a little typo in my sermon today. Not so typo this time. Thank goodness I did this one on purpose. It's all lowercase. It's a little I am, and not a capital I am. I was having a discussion with the kids the other night. On one Wednesday night, we were reading the Bible, and they were like, why are all the he's capitalized? And I said, because they, in that Bible that you're reading, every time it refers to God, every time it uses a pronoun for God, it capitalizes it for Jesus because he's God. It gives him honor. We're using the little case here because it's talking about us. Verse 15 through 17. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading, leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption by which you cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him so that we may also be glorified with Him. If we are joint heirs with the great I Am, if we are sons of God, if we are children of God, then I would say we are the small I Am. It's who we are that is particularly important in this case. Let me say this statement. The identity in Christ of the disciple is one of the most difficult realities for the disciple to embrace. Now read that again. I think I forgot to put that on the slide. Yep, I wanted to. Let me read it again. The identity in Christ of the disciple is one of the most difficult realities for the disciple to embrace, not understand, not cognitively comprehend, but to embrace it. What I'm talking about, I remember nearly eight years ago now, uh, when I first came to Clarion, we were having a home Bible study and I, and I was in a little group and we were uh, over in Marianne and we were having the discussion one night and I started trying to get people to say, to say, I'm a saint. Tell me you're a saint. Oh, I'm not saying that. Aren't you a saint? No, I'm not saying that. I'm a sinner. No, no, you're a saint. No. And we had this big, long discussion just trying to get people to identify, realize the identity we have in Christ. If you don't believe me, let me read some from the Bible. These are the introductions to most of the books of the New Testament. Romans 1, 7. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1. To the church of God, which is in Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. Second Corinthians 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is in Corinth, with all the saints who are throughout Acacia. Ephesians 1.1. 1, 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints 
who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Philippians 1, 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. Colossians 1, 2. To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from our God our Father. And that's just a sampling. Over and over and over, almost every case within the New Testament, the word saints is referring to believers. This is their identity. You are saints of God. Why are you saints? Because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus made you saints. It's not because of what you did. It's not because of how you live. Paul, the one who was sitting there, woe is me, wretched man that I am. I don't do what I want to do and I do what I don't want to do. That's Saint Paul. We're saints. But we get so hung up on what we used to be. We so identify I'm a sinner saved by grace. Yes, that's a true statement. You were a sinner saved by grace and now you are a... See, I can't even get you to say it in church. Everybody say, I'm a saint. Y'all almost meant that. It's hard to embrace this reality because we know the truth within our hearts and within our minds. We know the battlefields we fight. We know the battles we've lost. We know that sometimes we too often think, I can't instead of I can. I won't instead of I must. But it starts off with identifying as who you are. I am convinced if we went around saying, I'm a saint of God, there's a better chance of us acting like it than us going around saying, well, I'm just an old sinner. Because how you identify becomes this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. And, and I know that there's the humility argument. Well, you sound like you're bragging. You know, well, just throw, I'm a saint because of what Jesus did for me. You can put that on there. I'm a saint because Jesus made me one. I'm a saint because Christ died for me. I'm a saint because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You can give him the credit for it, for sure. But realize what he's made you. Because that is what he's expecting from us. And when we lower our expectations by, by not identifying with the work of God, somehow we're saying, you know, God didn't do enough. God did all he needed to do to sanctify us. Our place is in heaven. We are children of God if we have the spirit within us. This is your identity. It's who you are. It reminds me of what my parents used to say to me when I was a teenager. Again, I wish I'd have listened a little bit better to them. Every time I'd go to leave in those 16, 17, 18, 19 year old days, the last thing my mother or my father would say to me when I walk out the door, they were saying, remember who you are. And being sassy, I would always quote, oh, that's right, I'm Jason Ernest Hunter. I live at such and such. And, you know, I'd quote my... I would quote my address, give the phone number, tell my shoe size, some kind of smart aleck remark back to them. But what my dad and mom were saying to me is remember who you are. Remember your identity. You're my child. You're Jason Hunter, the son of Carl and Faye Hunter. And when you go out into this world, how you act represents us. You need to remember who you are in this world. 
You need to remember when you go out in this world and you put the title on Jesus follower, you put the title on Christian or disciple, that you represent your father in this world. Remember who you are. You are the I am because Jesus is the I am. And we represent the big I am by being little I ams in this world. We bring glory to his name. And so we must remember our identity, what Jesus died to give us, a new identity, sons of God. Let me ask some tough questions first then. I can, I must, I am. Some tough questions just for self-evaluation purposes. As we look, uh, and this is in the context of your faith and your discipleship. When it comes to your faith and your discipleship, let me ask a couple of tough questions for us. One, how do you identify, how do I identify myself? When you talk to yourself about who you are, how do you identify that? What, what identity do you own? How do you think of yourself? Uh, do, you, do you realize who you are? Do you realize what God's done for you? Do you realize what it means to have the Holy Spirit indwelling in you? To be called a child of God? To be his representative, an ambassador in this world. Do you think long and hard about who you are? What is that self-fulfilling prophecy? Do you, or do you do like someone, well, I'm just a glutton. You know, I'm a drunkard. I'm a, I'm a thief. I'm a, I'm a whatever. Whatever follows the I am statements that are in your head is generally what you're going to be. You know, I'm just an angry person. I, I, I have a temper. And, you know, if, you know, I, I shoot off the mouth. I, I, I'm a smart mouth. However you've defined that I am statement to yourself in your brain, in your mind, is what's going to guide how you live your life. And so setting our minds on the right I am statements is, is key to living that life. So how you self-identify. Two, when it comes to the I must, what do you find in your life? Do you set expectations in your spiritual life or do you find yourself making more excuses in your spiritual life? When, when you battle with the flesh, when, you, when it comes to your attention, you know, I have an issue with this part of my flesh. Well, here's what happened in my life. And here's why I'm weak in that area. And, and here's, you know, you know, I know I should do something about that, but, you know, the, it's just my weakness and, you know, it's my cross to bear. Do you, do you, or do you say, no, I'm expecting something more of myself. I'm expecting this week to go a week without. I'm expecting this month to be the first month that I don't. Or, or, or are you setting expectations or making excuses for how you live your spiritual life and fight the battlefields of the flesh? Then, how do you identify to others? <laughs> it starts off with that identifying to ourselves. Do, do others know that you're a son or child of God, daughter of God? Do they know, hey, I'm a Christian. Uh, I know someone, I know them very well, by the way, who won't put a fishy thing on her car. You know, the little fishy symbol? And her reasoning is, well, my driving may not be as Christian as I always want it to be. And I don't want to identify to others as a Jesus follower and then drive the way I drive. So I just avoid putting the fishy thing on my car altogether. We laugh at that. But there's some truth to it. 
Maybe we shouldn't put fishy things on our lives if we're not willing to let other people know we're Christians. So that, that the way we live, or, or do we live that way? Do we like, I don't really want people to know I'm a Christian because I, I'm not going to bring good uh, rapport, good reputation to that. How do we identify? Do others know you're a Christian regularly? Do you talk about it? Do you speak about it? Does it influence your life enough that others can identify you as a Jesus follower? And so then this mindset, the last tough question, if I can, if you can, set free by the Spirit, do something different. If there's an obligation to our Savior because of what He did, if you sense that at all, and if you realize your identity is an I am, the last question is, will you or will I? Will I fight these fights? Will I have victory? Will I do something different than what I've done? Well, let me give you quickly, I I think about it this way. When it comes to these battlefields of our mind, when it comes to this struggle of our, our mind, we see this idea, these like two boxers fighting, these, our flesh and our, and our spirit fighting with each other. The one who is the healthier, the one who is more well-fed, and the one who is more well-trained is usually going to win the fight. You know, if one of these boxers sits around eating Twinkies all day, never exercises, never works out, and just kind of waits for the fight to become to him, well, he's probably going to get it handed to him. If the other one spends time training and preparing himself and exercising. And so who we train is important. Paul uses the same imagery in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, therefore, I run in such a way as not with aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body, make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. It's the same image he uses to train himself to fight these fights, to fight this battle with our flesh. And so I want to give five tips for setting your mind on the spirit. Five tips for fighting in these fights. To, to building up that spiritual man to win against the, the natural man. Number one, scripture memory. Feeding your body. Feeding your spiritual mind. Psalm 119 says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Pretty simple, pretty straightforward. I put your word in there so that I might not sin against you. This is a method that we get from Dr. Nyman, seven times one minute a day. So if you would take a scripture, a small scripture, and repeat it to yourself seven times a day, taking no more than one minute. So seven minutes a day, but do it seven different times for one minute in a day. Over a number of weeks, a couple of weeks, it will become ingrained in you. I actually, he gave out some ideas. I made this little keychainy thing has beads on it so every time i say a verse to myself i move a bead over I'm, it's a counting little string so i move it over so that i can remind myself because i forget have i said it four times a day or five times a day or six times a day you may not have that problem i do so i brought i made a little something so i can count how many times a day and then tomorrow i'll move them back the other way as i remind myself of a verse that i'm working on uh, he said, he also gave other examples, put rubber bands on one, on your left arm, and every time you say it, move it over to your right arm, and at the end of the day, they should all be over here. Whatever. But take a verse, and seven times a day, take one minute to say a verse. Can you imagine, in a month, your life being altered because you remember, memorized verses of Scripture? You put them in your heart so you might not sin against God. Is God worth seven minutes a day for you to change your life? The second tip, scripture meditation, different than scripture memory. 
to, to meditate on Scripture, to, to look at it, to break it apart into small pieces and figure out where all the little pieces fit and put them together. Psalm 1 said, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked or sets his foot on the path of sinners or sits in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. Some people, what does that mean? I, I, two things I do. I take a scripture and I read it word for word. Like I write it down, but I'll like for God. So I write down for God. Then I'll say for God, so love. Then I write down so love. And I take time to define each word as I write it for God. Who's God? Then I'd write so loved. What does it mean to love? The world. Who's he talking about? And just break it down word by word, writing it, taking time. Instead of writing the whole sentence, write it down word, then the next word, and then the next word. So that you take time to think about what each word means or you can stress it differently when i then i'll read it like this for god so loved the world for god so loved the world for god so loved the world if you stress each word differently as you read it it makes you think about that word concentrating on it just a little bit those are just some hints some things i do journaling and other ideas but as you just take time not to just read but meditate think deeply about the words that god sent to you the third tip, eternal perspective. Colossians 3 says, uh, 2 and 3 says, Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth, for you have died, for your life is hidden with Christ and God. To, to put our mind on the big picture, that this is about eternity and not about just right now. Uh, one of the things I do, I do to check myself on this, I ask myself this question, in 100 years will it matter? You know, if it's not going to make a big difference in a hundred years, you know, that helps me at least start to try to get my mind set on eternal things. And when I think about eternity and the big picture, it helps me deal with the small picture of my life each day. The third one, quality input. Back in the day when I was in high school, computers were a new thing. And we used to do computer programming in school. You had to write out these little simple computer programs and make your little computer do something in right i see randy already mouthing it over there and we had this statement garbage in garbage out if you put the wrong thing in you weren't going to get the right thing out by the way computers are modeled after the human brain they're made to mimic the brain and in the same way our brain garbage in garbage out Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, if there's anything of excellence, is there anything worthy of praise? Think about these things. Put these things in your brain. I did an experiment on myself when I was in college. Um, I didn't believe this. I've always been kind of a prove-it-to-me kind of kid. And so one year, one semester during college... I decided I was going to try this out. And so for one month, for the first six weeks, I think it was, or first four weeks, um, I listened to nothing but Christian music. We had a Christian music station at that time, and I listened to nothing. I found Bible reading. I found able to get up every morning and read my Bible. I found, you know, journaling, uh, prayer time. It was much more fulfilling. After one month, I changed one thing in my life. I stopped listening to Christian music and started listening to everything secular. By the end of that month... I wasn't Bible reading. I wasn't praying. I was barely getting up going to class. It's the only thing I changed in my life. And I found that, that it, my spiritual life suffered because of what I started putting in my brain just on the entertainment basis of music. 
I tried that myself. I found that to be true. Garbage in, garbage out. And the final one, spiritual talk. What we call holy conversations. To have time to talk about God. It's interesting, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, it says, These words I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. All right, so, so the truth of God's word we're supposed to teach to our children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down and when you rise up. That God has an expectation that we will talk about him. That we'll talk about his word. We'll talk about his commands with other people. And if you look at that, it's, it's when you walk, when you go by the way, when you're in your house, when you lie down, when you get up, all the time. How many holy conversations, holy being set apart for God, conversations do you have in a week? Who do you sit down and talk with about God? About what God said, what God's done, what he's doing, what you want him to do, what you hope he'll do, what you see him doing. Is he a reality enough in your life that you talk about him? Because that keeps him on the forefront of our minds and it connects us with other people because most of us don't talk by ourselves. Some of us talk to ourselves. But if we're going to have conversations, it's with other people. So it's edifying for them and edifying for us. So if we do those five things, I think we find ourselves gaining greater spiritual strength as we fight these battles. Back up. So that's the first step in our victory. Next week, we'll cover the last step. And the great segue between our first step where we battle for our minds because of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit and the victory assured takes place on the cross of Christ. As we come to the table today, as we now start to switch gears, don't let this just be some addendum to what we've done. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because Jesus paid our penalty. He set us free. What was that payment again? That's what we come to embrace right now. That Jesus paid the penalty. He set us free so we could, so we would, and so that we might be his children. Let us embrace what God has done so that we can serve him, so that we must serve him, and so that we will be his children.